This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Yeah, it's working now. Hey, practical spirituality today. We're going to be discussing all the stuff like uh, stones, crystals, third eyes, and all all that kind of stuff. Incense and you know, all that stuff that most Jews are a little phobic of. So we're going to discuss that. So hold on for the ride. Hey, Paul Carpenter's watching. Well, say no more. Amazing. Okay. You know what? I'm going to watch myself today. That's what we're... Uh, Let's see what happens with that. Uh, it's stuck on that side. Let's flip it over then. Apparently, I went upside down for a minute. I'm going to watch myself. Hi, self. You know what's fun about watching myself is I get to say hi to all these people. <laughs> hi, Pop. Uh, okay, is the camera good? Good. <laughs> is the camera good now? Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Anyway. Um, Paul, you probably have a lot of experience with some of the stuff we'll be talking about today. Um, obviously, there's no one more phobic of pagan ritual than the Jews. I mean, we're like, we're like super phobic of that stuff. And, um, and usually phobic is not a good thing. Phobic means that you have no idea what you're doing. And so you're afraid of the unknown of it all. And, and, or, or it may be you think you know it, but you actually have no idea what you're talking about. And then you're still phobic. See, there's something called f- being afraid of something or being weary or, or pushing things out that are not good for you that you know all about. And then there's stuff you know nothing about. That's called phobic. And, uh, but we are not only afraid of pagan stuff, but we're also phobic because we don't understand half the stuff. And so all the stuff we don't understand, we just, you know, we just like, can we just stick with standard synagogue Judaism? <laughs> And like, okay, it's boring, but, you know, like, just don't mess with other stuff, you know, like, don't, don't play around. And the answer is that, that, that standard synagogue Judaism is fine. I mean, it's, it's great. And if yours is boring, so, uh, if your synagogue Judaism is boring to you and it doesn't touch you, you don't feel like you had been swimming that day. Because everyone, if you swam that day, anyone swam today? Nobody. So it, when you've swam that day, when you've meditated that day, when you've hiked that day, when you mountain biked that day, when you, anytime you've done something that you truly experienced, there's no doubting that you truly experienced something that day. But how many of us, raise your hands if you've ever been to synagogue, no one's going to see this, if you've been to synagogue, did what was prescribed, but didn't feel like anything happened to you that day. <laughs> Everybody, myself included, because many times I'll pray and I'm just fulfilling the, you know, I'm doing my job, you know, like, because I'm not feeling it, not going to be feeling it. Like, for example, uh, getting out of bed to Dab Mariv, that's always painful. <laughs> and it's always happening on my busiest nights where I just was running, 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 running and had to do a million things. And, and I finally am home and I'm talking to my wife and it's two in the morning and I'm starting to doze off when this it's like fingernails on a chalkboard or like a horror movie violin. It's just like, Mariv. <coughs> and I'm ready to kill somebody. <laughs> and this really separates the boys from the men if you get out of bed. And you're not allowed to pray in your pajamas, which in the Hasidic world just means your undershirt and your gatkos. Those are the white britches that we wear. So, so you're not allowed to pray in your pajamas, so that's out. Which means I'm getting dressed. How dressed am I getting? You know, okay, I'll pull on my pants, I'll put on a shirt, you know. But uh, that's about it, you know. And what kind of prayer service is that going to be? My wife told me the last time this happened, which was last week, she said, she said that this is going to be a really high prayer. And I'm like, why? And she says, well, you can ask for anything, you know, because you've showed God that you'll sacrifice. So you may not have a very good prayer service, but when you get to that little space where you can ask for something privately, like for your, you know, that personal prayer, let them have it. <laughs> Start with the word C. See, I got out of bed. <laughs> this is what we need to happen. Okay. Um, anyway. By the way, if anyone's watching this who's particularly wealthy, I'm buying a, uh, 
I'm buying, I might be buying an exotic mountain bike after this class. I only ride exotic mountain bikes. And the guy's waiting for me to finally pull the trigger. It's taken me weeks and weeks and weeks to figure out which one to buy. And I'm the kind of guy who doesn't check my bank account first before I do that. Why? Because there's certain people who realize that the only reason they appreciate my classes is because I've got an extremely wild lifestyle. And uh, even yesterday you were telling me to be careful on the mountain bike because I had such a head cold, like I was going to go sweat it out. Now, what do you think? Do you think I took it easy on the trail? <laughs> not only did I not take it easy on the trail, I wore less body armor because of that idea. Hit the trail in like full fury. I was, I was riding like someone put a firecracker in the backside of a squirrel. And, and so I, I just did the beginning of it, realized... I don't know how to not ride wild. So I just rode right back to my car and pulled on all my body armor and went back to the trail and had the most intense ride, like crazy ride, which was really interesting because there was a helicopter overhead that I wasn't quite sure of because I had, you know, loud rock and roll cranking. And I, but I just kept feeling like there's a yang, 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 yang. So I finally looked up and there is a helicopter the whole time. And, and then I noticed there's these Secret Service motorcycle cops you know those dudes all in black with the, the back guy's got his little machine gun ready? A bunch of those guys. And then I noticed now there's Jeeps and now there's this and now there's that. So I just decided I'm going to hide. Just kidding. So I decided <laughs> so I decided to pull one over and just ask him what's going on because no one knows these trails better than me and no one's going to be combing them like I'll be combing them over the next hour and a half. So, so they told me exactly what I'm looking for. And they were very PC in their description. They called him, he's an Easterner. I, it was like wink wink you know <laughs> I'm like an easterner okay <laughs> but I was surprised that they were being so politically correct about who we were looking for and then I, I went and looked and there were even places where I couldn't see everything so I turned off my music for a second just to listen, listen a little bit. I didn't find them and then eventually it got dark and they didn't find them no one found them check the news to see what might have happened. Like, maybe I shouldn't be in the forest. You know, like, if he really did something crazy in town, like, I don't want to be here right now. So, but uh, there was nothing in the news, so I kept riding. Anyway, so anyone who wants to, anyone who wants to help sponsor my bike, it's always been sponsored by this big CFO for the last 12 years. He's always sponsored my, my mountain bikes because he believes in my mission and he knows half my mission's successful because of my, my secret surfing mountain biking yogic meditative life um but yeah it's time so <laughs> let me know if you all want to pitch it and then it's like i'm writing on you <laughs> and then when i teach it's like i'm i'm teaching you're you're like in the class you're t you're you're getting the merit of the, of the class and if you don't think i can afford a bike i can afford a bike just not this kind of bike <laughs> <laughs> The whole idea when you're um, when you're riding on this level riding, like real expert riding, you want the bike to disappear. There is no bike. It's kind of like Zen, extreme sports, where you want the bike to be so silent underneath you. And I'm also clipped in. I'm locked into the bike, and my mind is totally on the terrain with extreme calculation going on at all times. There's no bike. The bike has fallen silent to the experience. It's just enabling me to fly through the dream that I'm in while I'm shooting through the forest. And it's, it's really, really something. And then when you have that level bike, you can really get creative on stuff that, I mean, there's stuff I go down on a daily basis when I'm out there that you cannot get down without ropes. You understand? You can't get down it without ropes. And you certainly aren't coming back up. <laughs> certainly not coming back up. And, the, uh, and so that's, that's the kind of stuff that I'm going down. But, but there's no bike. So, like, imagine going down that stuff in pure meditative adrenaline state. You know, it's pretty amazing. You certainly aren't yelling at your wife when you get back. You're just in love with the world and yeah. want a burrito. <laughs> Enough about all that. So... <laughs> Anyway, so one of the things that we're particularly afraid of is, um, is pagan stuff. 
I mean, we, you know how many commandments we have about pagan stuff? You have an overarching saying, don't do like them. That's an overarching, one of the 613. And then it goes in and, ex- and lists everything. Oops, nice. Got stuck. I'm not going to start again. But we know all 51 by heart. And they just go on and on and on and on and on. All the things you're not allowed to do. Which includes things like shaving over the your jawbone. That's why you'll notice observant Jews who are clean shaven. They generally have a nice lamb chop sideburn coming over that bone and uh, all kinds of things. Those are all pagan things and we're, we're not into those pagan things. We're in fact forbidden from them. And, uh, and they're big cholesterol in the spiritual arteries. You do not want that kind of stuff around you at all. And, and therefore also, and specifically, which we're going to be discussing is the service of God using those things. Now, all of us, you know, when we, when you're walking around Manhattan and you see like, you know, the, the, uh, crystal store, you can already smell the incense wafting out the door and you look in there and you're like, you know, I wonder what else you can buy in there that's illegal, you know, and they, and you know, you see those stores and, and you go in there and it's, you know, the, the guy selling the stuff has, you know, like, a, a, I don't know, his earlobes are, have holes in them this big, you know, and. He's covered in tattoos, purely pagan. The reason we're not allowed to get tattoos is they're on the list of the pagan things. You'll notice, by the way, a lot of people have, have um, actual pagan images. Uh, you know, a lot of tattoos are pagan images that you choose from. Not everyone goes for them. Um, by the way, if anyone did get a tattoo and only found out later that that was a no-no, so then you're all set. Because if you always want a tattoo, well, you got one, don't you? Yeah, and then you find out later you can't have one. Well, too late now. You know, what are you going to do about it now, brother? So you already got your tattoo. And what I found is when they get, they're a little nervous about getting married because, you know, like these ladies. I mean, you probably don't want to marry a guy with a tattoo, but she probably does. So, <laughs> so, so what happens is, you know, Miss Bead's in the hair. She's happy to have a couple tattoos in the action. So anyway, so the, <laughs> anyway, so what, what I've always found, though, for 27 years of marrying people off, that every time he marries the girl, and you know, obviously, you're, you, you know you have to spill the beans on fourth dates. You know that? You're allowed to date someone three times without telling her that you're uh, whatever, that you're like super cavalagilistic or, uh, or you're, uh, you know, whatever. You know, you got like, uh, I don't know, something weird. You know, you got like a, an extra ear behind your head or something. Like anything you got going on or your parents or your, your father's on death row for having blown up a bus in Nepal or something, you know, like you, you don't have to say any of this stuff till the fourth date. You know that you get to like, you get to just charm her socks off for three days and, but you got to drop the bomb on the fourth day. Oops, no bombs, but you gotta, you, you, you gotta let her have it on the fourth day. Just tell her everything, you know, like you gotta show her the tattoos unless obviously they're too private to show. But, um, but on the fourth date, you've got to let it be known what she's getting herself into and what he's getting himself into. Divorced parents, fourth date, got to let them know. If you didn't know already, but you got to let them know that, you know, what you're coming from, what you're dealing with. Before the fourth date, you're allowed to just get to know each other and see how it works out. Anyway, um, so I've, uh, of the 27 years of guys a little afraid and girls a little afraid what they're going to say with the tattoo. They, uh, uh, many of them got married and the, and she, like her secret little thing was she always wanted a guy with a tattoo. And here, here he is. The other one I've heard is, is that she had tattoos. So they got married and found out they both have tattoos. And so they were both, you know, Whatever, I've never heard of a case where they got married and she was like, you know, why does it say mom on your bicep? You know, never heard that happen. Anyway, but tattoos are part of the pagan stuff and, and they're, uh, they're on the no-no list, um, but obviously um, not, not if it's already there. The things people got to watch out for is once in a while you meet someone who has God's name on their tattoo, which then involves... Uh, having it uncovered in the bath and the shower and stuff like that. So people who have that have to cover it up. And you're also not allowed to erase it, meaning you can't do like laser surgery and start erasing God's name either. So it's, it's more problematic, but they just have to cover it when they're um, showering or at the mikvah or whatever. Mikvah is more problematic because keeping it covered, but maybe they can cover it with their hand 
or something like that when they go in the mikvah. And um, uh, so having God's name tattooed is, is a little more problematic. Otherwise, just just let it go. You know, move on. The um, and I, oh, or if it's a something pagan that's forbidden to have on the body altogether, like uh, you know something that's just a total icon of paganness. We have a, we have a, we had a student with a big cross on his arm. And uh, that the rabbis didn't know what to do with exactly, but he just couldn't take it because he's like, you know, he's a kind of intense guy that, you know, would have all that with the bigger lobes and everything. And he just was like, he couldn't have a cross on his arm, you know, and feel, you know, imagine putting tefillin over that. It's like, oh, man, you know, so so he actually went and got laser surgery and had the had the whole thing kind of faded out. Now, when we pass a store like that, we are thinking like that store is the antithesis of Judaism. That's like, that is not, you know, the young Israel of New Jersey, you know. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> it is so not Jewish. And you got these incense smells. If you poke your head in there, it's all crystals everywhere. And amethysts and quartz crystals and, you know, all the other names of the stones in there. And, and obviously the salesman, as I described him, and... It's just so not Jewish. Meanwhile, oh, not to mention the meditative music. That just doesn't sound very Jewish either. You know, all the meditative music and stuff. And, and uh, you know, the background music for meditation just doesn't seem Jewish. Meanwhile, it's, it is our tradition as Jews in the temple periods, and what we pray to return every day is returning, our yearning for the return of the temple, our yearning for those days. I mean, we say it in our prayers, bring us back to those days. What days? The days of, of Beit HaMikdash, that we should have it back. Well, what was going on over there? What was going on over there is we had major, we had incense that we were so specific about that it's the death penalty to create it for any other purpose. I mean, you can't even make the mixture. Forget burning it. You can't even make the mixture. It's a death penalty for making it. That's how dead serious we are about incense. Meaning it's not Gentile or pagan to have incense. There could be incense that was made with pagan, pagan thoughts in mind which I wouldn't use if I were you. I mean, one of the best-selling incense in the world is made by a guru, uh, a, you know, an ashram in India called, uh, uh, the guru's name is, uh, I don't know if I want to say his name. What do they call people named Seymour for short? Sai. And <laughs> no one knows anyone named Seymour anymore. People used to be called Seymour, so you call him Sai for short. So that's the first part. I'm not going to say it together. And the other one is, is Bubba. So that, that name and Bubba. Anyway, probably not a good idea to use that incense, although that incense is of the best meditative incense you could ever use. But this guy's, this guy's crazy, you know, heavy-duty, black magic guy. I mean, I'm sure it's part of the Buddhist tradition or Hindu tradition, whatever, but, like, he could do radical stuff, you know, radical stuff in there. And uh, um, I've had people I've spoken to who were in his little cult over there. And um, uh, one of them, when they were in the meditation with him, suddenly had this voice in his head saying, get out. You know, a nice Jewish boy from Long Island. Get out. Get out. He was trying, he was thinking, you know, when you're a master meditator, which he was, he was thinking, that voice, you got to just push aside, you know. But then it finally screamed, Get out! And he just got up and ran out of there. You know, and he never came back. But I've spoken to other people who were there. And, uh, and he, he, this guy, while meditating with the group, brought everyone to, without going into gory details, brought everyone to a climatic experience. Uh, without, you'll have to figure out what that means exactly. But the entire couple hundred people there went through that together. With him, with him being behind it all, um, there there are those who hold that he's literally sucking the energy out of everybody there, and he lives off everyone's energy, and you become this like pasty-faced zombie, 
in the cult. So, anyway, so you got to be careful. But the anyway, but but when it came to incense, like nobody was more serious about incense than we were. It was a big part of the the Yom Kippur service with the Kohen Gadol, big part of it. And there, <laughs> you know, just in the for, you want to talk spooky stuff. Like, does that sound spooky? You want to talk spooky, man? That temple had spooky stuff going on. And fire, the the Mizbech had smoke coming off. Obviously, it's this giant, big square thing full of wood that they were always replacing and taking out the ashes and stuff. And the the smoke went straight, no matter how windy it was. And you guys saw how windy it is today. Like there's plenty of wind out there today. So you imagine being on a really windy day in Jerusalem. You're in. You're, you're at the temple, and there's this perfectly straight pillar of smoke coming off the coming off the Mizbech. This is going on for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Generations after generations of Jews. Knowing that miracles are happening at all times in Jerusalem. If you've done something stupid, which people do, you'd come down to Jerusalem with your offering and go see all that stuff and just be like, get your head back on straight. You know, you put your head back on straight and you know, and see these kinds of things. It was enough just to see these things, to smell the incense. They say the incense was so intoxicating. And that was your first knowledge that you had come to Jerusalem. Before you could even see what was going on, you were already smelling stuff. And then you'd hear the music, because it was thousands of musicians playing meditative music. You know, so we're into meditation here, big time. And we're into meditative music, and we're into incense. You want to talk stones and crystals and all that stuff, precious stones. So we didn't just have them around. We had the high priest with a breastplate with 12 stones on him. They, were, they actually had the names of the tribes etched inside, but inside, meaning not etched in from the top or etched in from the bottom, but inside. Why? Because if you know enough Kabbalah, you know how to deal with a particular worm that it's called a shamir. It eats through stone. And... You could actually use the names of God and whatever other tricks they use. I don't know how they got them to do it. But this, there, there was, the Shamir worm would carve the names of the tribes into the stones. So he's, he's got this, like, he was wearing this thing. You could ask it questions. You could ask it, and they did ask it questions, nationally, nationally important questions, like having to do with, for example, foreign uh, relations and stuff. Are we going to war? Are they going to be an ally? What are we going to be doing now? They would always ask the they would ask the Cohen Guttel's breastplate what to do, and the breastplate would answer. Not only that, while you chopped up the incense, you know, because you got to make it super fine, like super super fine. So while you chopped it, the guy chopping it would say "Hatov, Hatev, Hedek, 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 means dak means finely ground. Hey, Tave means fine, like Tove. Tove, right? Doc means thin, literally. Tove means good, good and thin. Or in this particular case, finely ground. Hey, Dick, hey, Dick, hey, Dick, hey, Dick, hey, Tave. Hey, Tave, hey, Tave, hey, You guys want to try it? Hey, Dick, hey, Tave, hey, Tave, hey, Dick. While he would chop it, he would say that. You know why, says the Mishnah? It was good for the incense. It was good to be saying that while you did it. Meaning it was good for the mixture and all the effects that mixture is going to be having on all the people. So, like what? Since one is saying something while you chop something, good for it. You know, I mean, should we start saying that when you're chopping a salad? Man, you say that next time you make a Shabbos salad, you know. And then you're sitting at the table, like, waiting for everyone to eat it, just like. <laughs> Let's see what effect it has. You know? But they would say it while they chopped it, because, because our Kabbalists knew that that was exactly what the incense needs to, like, really do its thing. So like we, we, we've got all the oogly-googly stuff going on big time. And um, stones in the breastplate, incense wafting in the air, uh, meditative music. And we were serious about our meditation music, too, because uh, 
what would happen is when you brought your offering, and many people were bringing uh, offerings for having done something really stupid, and those are called hatais uh, hat, uh, or uh, or called uh, ash ashamos ash, asham offering. So they would bring guilt offerings. So they were bringing these offerings, and here's the issue: is this is the temple in Jerusalem? Like you better you bringing this sheep. You're going to kill a sheep over something you did wrong, you know, and you're supposed to, like, transmutate yourself into this sheep. Many of the offerings, you'd lean on it and, like, stare the sheep in the eyes and, and like, say, like, you're me, I am you, like, like this should be me for having, for having, like, gone against the nature of creation, meaning having broken one of the commandments. I've gone against nature of creation. I should be killed. I can't be killed over such a thing, but... You're going to be killed instead. The sheep's just like, oh, great. So, and the, no, but seriously, if you, if you were a sheep and you're either going to be slaughtered for shawarma or just have people shearing you once in, every few weeks, or you get to die on, and go put, be put up on the, on the altar in Jerusalem, personally, if I were reincarnated as a sheep, I'll take the third for sure. You know, it's nice to keep people warm in the winter with your wool, and it's also nice to have people chewing on your shawarma. But, uh, uh, Peter, can you slide over a little this way? But the, um, I'll take the altar any day if I were a sheep. And the, um, Just trying to get myself rewired. I'm thinking about being a sheep right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, I'm just trying to rewire myself for our subject at hand, which is uh, the temple work. Oh, animal sacrifice. I mean, you can't get more pagan than that, animal sacrifice. But, you know, I, before you go to bed tonight, look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm an an- animal sacrificer. I'm a ritual animal sacrificer. Because you are. You know, if the devil was built today, every, we'd be, you'd just be in a long line right now. You know, your little bah, bah, you're like, okay, a few more minutes now. We should be coming up soon. You know, and the, and you'd be bringing your sheep. You know, you'd have to just include everything you've ever done on that sheep because, <laughs> like, how are you gonna figure it out? You know, but for sure, all of us are bringing sheep. If that temple's built by this afternoon, we're all gonna be bringing sheep today. So you're you're an you're a ritual animal sacrificer. Uh, would it be pagan to add a device to the brain to become smarter, better, faster? <laughs> no, Paul, that would be fine. So, as if anyone could be smarter, better, or faster than Paul Carpenter. I mean. And uh, anyway, I told you guys. You know who's on there right now? Did I tell you guys the story the other day of the Arabs? Um, I'm sorry, the, the Easterners who had, um, they had slingshots and rocks mm-hmm. and were ready to, to ambush us. And I sent a magician. That's who's on live with us right now. I don't know, Paul, if you got to hear that. I told the story of how you like saved us with your magic. You know, I mean, only God would do that. You're about to get ambushed and like literally pelted to death by stones. And, and but you happen to have a world-renowned magician in your van that you can like send to the ambush, wow them with his magic, till you can pull up right next to him. And he jumps in the van. You drive, you know, with your foot in hell. Yeah. He said it was such a great day. <laughs> yeah, wondering where we were the whole time. <laughs> Thank God you guys got to that place. It's just too bad you pulled into the ambush. But you guys didn't know at the time that what was where you were exactly. And if any of you drive stick and are willing to shuttle me, you know, I, I'll send you way deep in the mountains. I'll do. I'll ride, and you get to like meditate in the mountains till till you get the phone call. Anyway, um, uh, just one more thing after the ritual slaughter is I was I realized where I got lost is the the music is that there was a there was a Kohen who had what's called Chachmas Partsuf do you guys know what Chachmas Partsuf means? you got me a soda water? Yeah. that's so sweet 
You're really, really funny to bring me a seltzer. Oh, I hope you like it. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of a story where I learned that public speakers should not drink things with uh, carbonation. Yeah. Amazing. No, no, I'm going to drink it. Don't worry. No, I was speaking to a, uh, it was a Hasidic school in Brooklyn, a few thousand Hasidic girls, you know, in full uniform and stuff, and they all seem to look the same. But the other thing was they don't move. And here I am just speaking the way I speak, which no one's ever spoken to them like that. You know, everything's always like, you know, I need the hat, obviously, and the coat. Today we'll be speaking about Parshat Vayera, and we'll be learning a very specific lesson that Rashi teaches us in Perk. Kaf Dalad Pasuk Yud. Anyway, so I'm just speaking like this, you know, they're not moving. There's not everyone's blank faced for like an hour. It's an hour and a half talk. But here's the thing, they never gave me water. So and I, I'm starting to get like I'm starting to think I'm hallucinating because it's turning two D. The the group. There's th- over three thousand girls in there. And all in uniform and no moves. That's, that stops being 3D after a while. At first, I saw the depth. Later, with not a single person moving, like, I'm talking moving a millimeter. It was going 2D sometimes. So I was starting to get freaked out a little bit. And then, and then I, so I finally, like, look over the principal, and I'm like, water, water. So all she had was seltzer. So she brings me a cup of seltzer. I guzzle it, because I'm, like, parched. I guzzle the cup of water. I guzzle it. Come back my microphone and I'm just like I don't know where this thing came from but it was like from the bottom of the earth and it just like just like (laughs) and the whole room then it went 3D the whole room just goes like (laughs) and they were and it was like one of the probably one of the highlights of my speaking career you know it's cool when crazy things happen when you're speaking um, one of the worst things I'll tell you, just if you're ever a public speaker, is forgetting what you're talking about. That's never comfortable. I mean, the subject. Like, it's on a flyer outside the synagogue or something, and you don't remember what your subject was. In mid-speech, I mean, you've already been talking about it for a while, and suddenly the flyer's gone. I mean, suddenly the subject's gone. So now you're sitting there going, like, you're, like, praying. You're, like, please, God, Please. Just the subject. You know, and of course, everyone in the room's on the edge of their seats because like, if he's concentrating this much, the next, <laughs> the next thing he's going to say is like, it's going to be the line of the class. Meanwhile, you're, what you're really saying is lying. So anyway, I finally couldn't take it anymore. It was like making me crazy as a public speaker. So I finally, and speaking to 200 people in Denver, Colorado, I finally said, you know what? I'm asking them. I'm just going to ask them. I mean, anyone in Denver, anyway, has short-term memory loss issues. So, anyway, so I I asked the crowd, and I'm like, can anyone please tell me what it is I'm talking about? You ready for this? No one knew. No one knew. Not a single person in that room knew what I was talking about. No one. Not the subject, not the last line I said, nothing. Nothing. And this wasn't a comment on Denver. I've tried this many times since then, and other communities. No one knew what I was talking about. So, so I, well, you, here's the beauty of the story is that I never, ever worried again to forget what I'm talking about because no one knows what I'm talking about. And so I chilled ever since then. Never cared. And you want to know something? The pressure was off and very rarely do I ever forget what I'm talking about now, which is great, except for this time. So what happens is there was a coin. Listen to this, a coin. Are you a coin by any chance? Coin. Coin. Mayor's a Cohen. So there was a Cohen whose job, what's your name? David. David. David, there was a Cohen whose job at the temple was to, was to watch the faces. He had something called Chochmat Partsuf. Chochmat Partsuf means that you can look at the physiognomy. You know the word physiognomy? Physiognomy is the study of the story behind your face. You realize all your facial muscles are telling the whole story. You know, the, the face is packed with muscles. And the muscles are developed based on your, the narrative of your own life. 
So the, the different people have different faces based on what they've been through. Some people's uh, lips turn upward, like in a natural smile. A couple of you are like that in here. Some people's lips go downward in a natural uh, non-smile, to put it nicely. Some people's, um, you know, like, but cheeks are involved in all this. Chin, movement of your lower jaw when you talk. These are all formed out of, uh, he has a natural smile, by the way. So they're all formed out of your... Um, out of your life story. And you can actually transform it. I've watched many people in, my, in the works I've, I run, the transformation work I run, the, um, the seminars, they, I've watched people's faces transform. Which is a hell of a lot cheaper than plastic surgery, I'll tell you that. And, the, and all of a sudden, light's coming off these people. And their, and their facial muscles switch. They relax. And, this is, and one of the proofs of all this is accents. You know, you, why, should you, why should you never be able to sound like an Israeli? If you're here long enough, you're speaking Hebrew full-time, why do you always sound like an American? And why do they keep answering you in English, even though you're fluent in Hebrew? And the answer is, is that the English, the muscles in the face of an American-speaking English person, are those muscles don't work well with Hebrew. You can speak Hebrew perfectly and be totally understandable, but you will never, ever, ever sound Israeli. And uh, whereas French people, their muscles of, the muscles of French people work well in Hebrew, and so do uh, Persians. Persian muscles work well with Hebrew. It's amazing how it does, but it just does. Russian people, it doesn't work well at all in Hebrew. Russians always sound Russian when they speak Hebrew. And so it's all just, these are all muscles in the face, which is fine. Uh, the cool thing is I raise my kids trilingual. They're all Yiddish, Hebrew, and English. And the great thing about it is they have such agility in the muscles that they all come out without an accent. You don't hear any Hebrew in my kids, right? There's no Israeli in my kids. And, and it might be that the Yiddish was added because you'll notice that English-speaking Israeli kids, their English is horrific. It is so thick, you know. They call their father Faza. Yeah? And they're, I mean, not to mention grammatical issues, you know. Where was you, Fazel? <laughs> Where was you, Fazel? So this is the way they speak. You know, you ever heard the way they speak English? I don't want to mention any names, but there's a rabbi or two here that you might have been to his house for Shabbos, <coughs> hearing their kids speaking English. And the, um, anyway, but I trilingual my kids. And so every language comes out without an accent. They're Hebrew, they sound as Israeli as anybody, and their English is right. There was a Kohen there who had Chachmas Partsuf, which means he could read into your face and know what's really going on. He could see the muscles of your face, and he knows what's really going on. Well, what might be going on? What's the big deal? Why do we have to have a Kohen for this? Well, what might be going on is this guy keeps sinning and bringing sheep, meaning he's basically a sheep killer. And any of you ever get habitual about a particular sin? Probably most people. Most people get pretty habitual. Well, the only way out of your sins in those days was a sheep. These days, you know, we're relegated to speaking it out with the four steps in which are stop, say, regret, commit. Stop doing what you're doing. Say what you did to God, not to anyone else. Regret is expressed, you know, had I known then, if I had the clarity then that I do now, I wouldn't have done it. Regret. Commit is I'm not going there again. But habitual sinners just keep doing that pr- procedure with sheep, having Kohanim kill the sheep, and then this big offering going on, which included probably blessings and stuff, using God's name. We can't have that kind of stuff going on at the temple. And so what happened was there was a Kohen to safeguard this, and his job was to watch everybody who were waiting in line, and they'd watch somebody. If they saw somebody bringing a sheep out of, um, what's the word? Perfunctory, rote, um, you know what I mean. Doing it, you know, just to do it and get clean as opposed to doing it for real. Um, What would happen was the Kohen would spot him out. He wouldn't call him out. He would just call to the conductor. And that was the word, you know, the word, you ever seen a Tehillim Psalms that says, Lam Natseg to the conductor? Yeah, so that was, those are probably those Psalms. 
where he would call to the conductor of this gigantic orchestra and this gigantic choir. There was a conductor. And so he'd call to the conductor, I'm not sad, to the conductor. And he would, he would, you know, it was kind of like a catcher in baseball, you know, making the little signs in his mitt, you know, that no one should see, you know, what pitch to throw. So he would, like, make the little signs what pitch to throw to the conductor. Conductor would then, you know, switch the songs. You know, once that song finished, obviously, he would not stop a song in the middle, but he would switch the When this guy came with his carbon, they were already playing a longer a song. Songs were long, by the way. It wasn't like, it wasn't like you had, like, a leopard... Re- Leopard Regal, a record label. It wasn't like you had a record label, you know, saying, well, make sure it's under four minutes, you know. There was, some of these songs could go on for a really long time. You know, it could be an hour-long song with no repetitions. You know, these were intricate, intricate songs. And, you know, that's why we don't know them. <laughs> How could we have lost all those songs? The answer is, they were not simple songs. These were, like, extremely intricate songs. I mean, they made the music we listen to. You know what they would be, what they, some of the rabbis say is they were best compared to is symphonic orchestras, you know, symphony orchestra. That the, I mean, if you guys have heard how, how complex that is, you know, with a full giant symphony. How many people play in symphonies? I don't know how many people, like 50, 60 people. Now, you know, you can have 15 violinists, you know, 10 uh, people on viola, you know, eight cellists, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, it was a big orchestra and they were playing super intricate music and it was, uh, I, I guess it wasn't notated, so we don't have it, which is really sad, but it, it had it, had it only been simpler, we would all be singing it today, but it's, uh, some people like to say, cause Carly Bach's music's so deep that, that everyone's like, oh, Carly Bach definitely was like, that must've been the music of the temple, but I promise you, if that was the music of the temple, we'd know the music from the temple. Because, like, I mean, once you hear, you know, it's kind of locked in for about three generations. You know, your kids are going to be born sing, singing it. You know. Sing it. That song? Yeah, for just for a minute. Oh, you got a solo. Eh? Anyway, too late, you already did. So, uh, it's over. Just kidding. <laughs> You're punished. <laughs> no, I was speaking. The guys are going to sing with me. I don't want to sing a solo right now. I have a great voice. Oh, you're like trying to recapture the Baltimore Shabbaton. Really? That's so nice. But I, don't make me sing right now, please. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I also have this whole thing that I never let women tell me what to do. <laughs> it's really bad for marriage. So I practice with other women for when I get home. Okay. Yeah. Nothing makes a woman feel more insecure than being married to someone that she gets to tell them what to do. It's meaning I don't even mind it. Like I actually wouldn't mind being told what to do by my wife. The problem is bad for her. Because a woman who tells her husband what to do and then he goes and does it creates great insecurity for her. And she, a woman needs a king. And, and so, so it's just not the dynamic you want to create. And so I, I'm very careful with that. Obviously, obviously, I'm not that crazy, you know, like... I, Meaning, it's not like it's not like our the lady in charge of my classes downstairs, my curriculum when groups come to Israel. It's not like she says, Rabbi, if you don't mind doing the class on uh, finding your soulmate, and I'm like, so not to do that class, okay? I mean, I'm not that great. Yeah, you're getting me retract. Uh, just to finish the coin thing, so the conductor plays this song. That blows everybody out. Meaning you, were, you weren't even bringing a sin offering. You were bringing a, a toda. You know what a toda is? Toda? What kind of offering? Thanks. It's a Thanksgiving offering. You're coming because you hadn't had a kid in 10 years and all of a sudden you had quadruplets. And so you're like, okay, here we go. We're bringing a toda offering. And you're coming. It's got a lot of breads and everything everyone gets to eat. You know, there's like, I forget how many breads are in a toda offering, but there's a lot of bread coming out of that one. Five, five to four. So, five to four. You said it for four or five? Did you really? Oops. So, um, this class is over. Goodbye.
No, they all, they all, everybody in the place. It's okay. It was funny after that whole discussion, though. So, it's cool. No, we're good. We're good. Because I said four or five. So she heard four or five. So, anyway, the, you did right for what I said. But he explained that it's five, two, four. Yeah. Okay, listen. You did exactly what I said, five and four. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the um, it caused everyone to spontaneously combust and go into, you ready for this? Convulsive sobbing. <laughs> the, the, the orchestra had up his sleeve convulsive sobbing songs. And like everyone would just go into convulsive sobs. Meanwhile, this guy's got his whole family there giving thanks to God for having, fun, you know, weaned four quadruplets in total joy. You know, he brought friends, they all got guitars, everyone's like having the time of their lives. Now everyone's convulsively sobbing, you know, and it would just make everyone, they didn't play these a lot because, you know, a lot of people weren't coming for that. Not to mention all the Kohanim weren't planning on going into convulsive sobbing. But convulsive sobbing was one of the uh, numbers they would play. Can you imagine being there for that? I mean, how insane that would be. You know, there wasn't enough tissue around for these experiences. And I guess in those days, they didn't have tissue at all. They probably had a handkerchief or so. But uh, people were just like falling apart all over the place for this guy. And of course, he was falling apart more than anybody because not only is he falling apart for whatever he's falling apart for, he's now he's falling apart for the sin he did, and now he's triple falling apart for the fact that he thought he was going to bring a sheep. You know, out of rote. So it was super intense. Now, now, having learned all these things, you know, over the years, some of the stuff I would be like, come on, man. Like, songs that makes everyone spontaneously, com- like, go into convulsive crying. But I actually, I witnessed it myself. When I heard this, I wasn't like, come on. I said, I've seen this happen. I've <laughs> actually been there and seen it happen. I was, I was at a Grateful Dead show. Um... <laughs> Many many years ago, and uh, and the and I realized, like I started touching my face, and I was like, "Am I crying?" But I was like deeply crying. <laughs> yeah, not only you're crying, you're deeply crying. You're sobbing. So then I realized I'm sobbing. Now that gets a little self-conscious. Like I'm in the middle of a concert. You know, there's thousands of people in the room, but there's hundreds next to me, and I'm like, "Oh well, I hope no one noticed that I'm sobbing here." You know, and the, it was standing room area, the floor area. And it, was, you know, it was more like dancing, and you know, it was open area over there. It wasn't on the seats up above. And so, like, I hope no one notices that I'm sobbing. You know, you kind of look around, see if anyone else is, you know, like noticing you. Guess what? I noticed the guy next to me. He's sobbing. I look to my left, sobbing, and I finally just say, "Well, the people next to me are sobbing. This is getting a little weird." So I decide I'm turning around. I'm towards the front. I was like ten feet from the stage, so I turn around. I got a big area behind me, you know, a good hundred feet of people there. Not only is everyone sobbing, but there's actually huddles of people already in group sobbing hugs. You know, like group hug, group sobbing hugs, and they're just like, and like sobbing and sobbing and then I'm looking up at the bleat you know all around you know it's a giant stadium 30,000 people in the place so I'm looking around and it, the whole entire place is sobbing I'm like what is going on here I mean this is crazy and then literally five minutes later everyone is jumping for joy and dancing like to the you know a nice upbeat song and dancing with absolute like the the most joyous experience maybe ever that I'd experienced was you know dancing with utter joy, jumping up and down, just jumping for joy. Everyone's just jumping for joy. Five minutes later, everyone's jumping for joy after the sob. So when I learned that there was a Cohen making sure everyone was in the right place in their hearts when they brought things, and that if they weren't the conductor could shift the entire scene like that with the next song. And I was like, yeah, I get that. 
I get that for sure. For sure that would be possible. And I've experienced it myself. Mayor, yeah, you want to say something? <clears throat> uh, no, come back to me. Come back to you? Okay. Uh, we didn't get to get to the third eye once again, but what we did do is find out about the that Jews were highly involved in this stuff. And I'll, I'll just mention the story. I know I mentioned this the other day, but I was, my son-in-law's a coin. And where I do my meditations in my house, I have a little space that I use. And, uh, and it's got, it's got precious stones and stuff there. And it's got, it's got incense and, uh, which my favorite is Israeli sage. It's just amazing. But I also have several things from the temple as well. Uh, Israeli sage, I said. The, uh, our sage blows away all the sage in the world. Like everyone's used to like the smudge sticks from California, the white sage. This is like a million times more intoxicating to, to smell. So if you get a chance hiking in Israel, you know, keep your nose aware of maybe you're passing some sage and it's usually in rocks it likes to grow in rocks and then kind of come out of the rock area and please don't try to pull up the roots it's like first of all you, you, I don't think you could but, but leave it alone the um, anyway but I've got the sage wafting and names of God on the in you know I framed pictures with names of God and stuff with uh, you know a lot of important names and numerical values of names and stuff and and um, and obviously the music is playing out of my little jam box, my Bluetooth jam box right there, which is an amazing piece of equipment. Anyway, uh, but my son-in-law's super Israeli and super B'nai Brak, Haredi Israeli, you know, like, this is like, and I don't know if you'd have married my daughter if you knew his father-in-law was going to be this, like, you know, Merlin, you know. <laughs> Anyway, but my my grandkids, you know, these little these little cute little rugrats, you know, they're like they Kohanim, by the way. They they smell. He's a coming, so they smell the incense. They hear the music. They know where to find Zadie. You know, they know where Zadie is, and they come in. They're sitting there. They're sitting there watching Zadie. Thanks, I blew it again. They, sure I had the alarm set. It, it was set ten minutes late. It was set ten minutes late. So. Anyway, my grandkids are there. And what happens is they just go into my state. So they're just sitting there. Meaning I open my eyes for my meditations and they're both like on a bed right under the whole thing. You know, just sitting and meditating. You know, these little guys. And and uh, anyway, so I said... So what happened, my son-in-law comes in and says, you know, I really don't like this. You know, this is just so not Jewish. And and anyway, I went on and I went in on him and I said, not only is a Jewish, but you better start getting used to it. And you're praying for Mashiach every day, so not only should you be used to it, your grandkids should be right here getting getting into the swing of things. If we believe that this is where it's at, you know, we seem to pray for it enough, you know, so, so why can't we include a little of it in our meditations? And, and so they were, you know, so he was just like, whatever. He walked out and he left the grandkids. <laughs> Bad grandpa. Okay. Shalom, everybody. Have, have an Bye. amazing day. Rabbi Nikomaya. Okay. okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.